First of all, welcome to the LSE. Welcome to 2011, I think it's said on the website, so I'm sure Eli will tell us what that's all about. Um, uh, I'm Ellen Halsper, I'm chairing the event for uh, today. Uh, I guess I should say welcome to every, each and every one of you, but especially welcome to Eli Perizer, who's going to be our public speaker for this evening. Um, I have the honor of introducing him and uh, giving a little bit of background information about him, but I'm sure you're all web savvy and he can be found online. I don't think the filter bubble has filtered the information about, uh, about him out yet. Um, so I guess I'll start with how he describes himself. He describes himself on his website as an online organizer and disorganizer which uh, seems a quite logical career progression from doing a BA in law, politics, and society. Um, he is co-founder of a website called avaz.org, and I recommend that you go and have a look at it. It's pretty special. Um, a little bit of history is that um, he used to have his own website, um, which became kind of a success overnight, I think without him even expecting it, which he merged in November 2001 with a website called moveon.org. Um, which uh, does basically foreign policy campaigns in the States, if I have understood that correctly. And um, through, through the work on that site, he's demonstrated the power of small numbers. For example, how very small donations can be kind of um, collected and mobilized through online engagement and can, can actually contribute to something quite big. Um, and a lot of the things that he's done have now become standard practice in online organizing. So it's quite a legacy. Another claim to fame, apparently, is how his website helped the Democrat, Democrats rec reclaim the House and Senate in 2006. A little bit of history here. Okay. Um, right now, he's executive director at moveon.com. Oh, he's actually become president in the meanwhile in, in 2008. And he's appeared as commentators on shows that we all know, at least start of the week, which is the UK one, <laughs> but other ones like Good Morning America, World News Tonight, and The Colbert Report, which, and you say very explicitly on your website, everywhere except Fox News, so I think I should, should mention that. Okay. So, but the main reason he's here tonight is that in May 2011, he published this wonderful book called The Filter Bubble, What the Internet is Hiding from You. That's what we would all like to know. I really enjoyed reading the book. I really did. It reminded me of some of the things that I already knew and probably shouldn't have forgotten. <laughs> but it also gave me some new ideas and got me thinking about some stuff kind of in a, in a new direction. So um, I guess you kept me up at night a little <laughs> bit. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing you tell us in person what, what your book is all about and what you would like the main message to be. Um, you will speak for about 40 minutes. After that, um, we'll open the floor to discussion. Uh, we'll take questions. Everybody, I'm hoping, who has a question will get the time to ask it, although it tends to be the case that we run out of time in these events. But um, just to mention this now already, for those of you who are interested, after um, the questions and after the event, there will be uh, book sales and book signing uh, outside, and we'll, you'll be there to hopefully maybe answer some quick questions for those people who are. Uh, interested in the book and the signing. So, the floor is all yours. Great. Hi, everybody. Um, 
I grew up in a small town in a rural part of Maine. Uh, it was about 900 people in our town. And uh, growing up, I got my Wired magazines, and I read about the internet, and I imagined this sort of global uh, connective medium. I imagined um, being in conversation with people on different continents, people who had coming into contact with radically different ideas. I imagined it as sort of a way of connecting to the world far beyond my little town. And recently I've been wondering if the internet is actually going to turn out that way. I've been thinking that maybe it's not quite as connective as we thought. So the first inclination, inkling that I had that uh, something might be a little amiss uh, happened on my Facebook page. And this was after I'd spent uh, several months actually seeking out people who thought differently from me. I, I really wanted to hear from people who had different political views, see what they were posting, engage in some conversations, and, and learn a thing or two. But uh, when I loaded my Facebook page, I uh, noticed something strange. My conservative friends weren't there. And as it turned out, Facebook had been watching what I was doing on the site. It had been tracking every click and every like. And it had noticed that while I said I wanted to hear from my conservative friends, actually, I was clicking more on the links that my more liberal friends were posting. And so without consulting me about it, it edited them out. They disappeared. And this got me thinking. This got me curious. And I started to see this phenomenon pop up all over the web. And I'll get to some of the other places that it's popping up in a second, but it drove me to ask this question, why? Why is this technology spreading so rapidly? So uh, the place to start here, I think, just as a, as a brief background on the sort of rise of the era of personalization, is a problem that uh, Eric Schmidt at Google likes to talk about. And he describes it this way. In all of human history, uh, if you take everything that people said, if you take everything, every conversation, every work of art, uh, and you were to translate it into bits, be about five exabytes. That's about 80 million 80 gigabyte iPods, if you want to think about it that way. Five exabytes. And the problem is that that's the same amount of data that was created in the last three days. So this, there's, there's this torrential uh, you know, surge of data that uh, is pouring online from picture phones, from status updates, from documents and videos, and uh, we're overwhelmed by it. We need some way of sorting through it. And uh, what some clever engineers figured out was that you could actually locate some patterns in the data. You could start to see uh, that certain kinds of data went together. And uh, you could do this thing that we're all now familiar with of if you like this, you like that. You could start to say, ah, this is a person who clicked on this. And we know that other people like that person also clicked on something else. So we can predict that if we show them that, they'll be more interested. And the interesting thing about this process of uh, finding these patterns in the data is that uh, often you discover correlations that are very hard to spot from a human eye. You, you wouldn't necessarily know that you were revealing uh, what you were revealing about yourself uh, when you reveal 
a certain piece of data. For example, if you said uh, that you prefer milk to wine, you might not know that that's actually a very likely indicator that you're a political conservative. <laughs> or uh, if you mention uh, the big Lebowski, uh, you might not recognize that that signals you out as a very likely to be a white male. <laughs> or uh, if you um, uh, like The Wizard of Oz on Netflix, you might not recognize that that makes you very likely to like another movie. You can probably guess what it is. Of course, Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> you know, or uh, you might not recognize that if your desktop was, was cluttered, that you're 12% more likely to be politically liberal. So there are all of these uh, connections between these pieces of data that reveal things about us that we may not recognize that we're revealing. And in fact, when I talked to someone at a company called Hunch, he explained to me that with just five data points about a person, you can generally predict with about an 80% accuracy almost their answer to any other question of consumer preference. And not only that, but in fact, if you know two people, if, if two of my friends have revealed their five data points, then even if I haven't revealed anything, if you know that they're my friends, you get that same 80% accuracy on what my preferences would be. So our privacy, our, our, this personal information in a way is being crowdsourced. We're, we're, it's not just about what we reveal, it's also about what our friends reveal. And um, the company that has actually in some ways gone the furthest with this process of statistical uh, correlation and, and using that to serve people personalized data is Google. So uh, Google actually starting in December 4th, uh, 2009, uh, has been personalized. We don't all see the same Google results. In fact, there is no standard Google anymore. There's no way to turn it fully off. We see a subjective result, not the quote-unquote authoritative or definitive one. And uh, I, I decided to try to test this out recently just to see how uh, significant the phenomenon was. So I asked a bunch of people earlier uh, this winter to Google Egypt. So here's my friend Scott's uh, Google search. And uh, here's my friend Daniel's Google search. They're both male Caucasian men in, in New York. They're about the same age. And when you put them side by side, you don't actually even have to see the text to see how different these two views are. But what's really dramatic is that while Daniel well, Scott got all of this information about the crisis in Egypt, about what was going on there politically in his top three results. Daniel got nothing about the Arab Spring, about the protests there in his first page of results. He got literally nothing at all. It was like it had never happened. So the, the driving force behind this, if you talk to people at these companies, is a race for what they call relevance. Relevance is kind of the watchword. Um, and at Facebook and at Google and at many other companies uh, that are trying to, uh, you know, take over the, the new web, um, that's sort of the key thing. Can you engineer relevance? Can you find better ways of providing personally relevant uh, information? And to do that, they need this massive amount of data about each of us. So the top 50 websites 
um, collect on average about or, or deposit about 64 tracking cookies and personally identifying uh, pieces of code on a, each of our computers a piece, the top 50 websites. And that allows them to follow us around the web wherever we go. Um, and not only that, but to actually sell that data to other companies. So there's this whole uh, behavior market that is starting in which a click on a website over here can in milliseconds be raffled off to a website over here, which can use that data to customize what we see. And that's why uh, you know, the, the, the people in these companies are very bullish on this uh, technology because it means that people will click more, it means that people will uh, view more ads, it means people that will, will stay on these sites longer because they're seeing things that are familiar, they're seeing things that are like them. And so Sheryl Sandberg, the number two person oops, at, uh, or top on bot at Yahoo, says the future of the web is about personalization. And Sheryl Sandberg, uh, the, the number two person at Facebook, says that in a few years, it'll be anachronistic to see a website that is not customized or, or personally tailored in some way. And Eric Schmidt, the former Google CEO, says it will be very hard for people to watch or consume something that has not in some way been tailored for them. So this is spreading like wildfire. It started with ads. It started with being able to target ads to each of us based on our interests, but then it moved to products, and now it's moving to information. It's moving to news. Yahoo News, the biggest news website on the internet, is now personalized. Different people see different sets of stories. And in the United States, the New York Times and the Washington Post have both invested heavily in startups that are trying to provide this kind of custom-tailored, personalized version of a newspaper. And I think, uh, you know, really it was Mark Zuckerberg who summed up both the promise and the peril of this best. Zuckerberg was talking to a journalist who asked him about uh, the Facebook newsfeed. What's so special about the Facebook newsfeed? Why, why be so uh, excited about it? And he said, a squirrel dying in front of your house may be more relevant to your interests right now than people dying in Africa. And I want to talk about what a web based on that idea of relevance is going to look like. So the, the, the picture here is that increasingly online, we see the world that we want to see. Not necessarily the world that is it is, not necessarily the world that we need to see. It means that increasingly, without knowing it, we're surrounded by this array of personalized filters, almost a membrane that sits between us and the world. And uh, that suggests to me that uh, what we live in increasingly is a filter bubble. It's uh, a unique personal universe of information that's created by all of these filters. And the thing about the filter bubble is that we don't decide what gets edited in, and therefore we really don't know what's being edited out. We don't know what we're not seeing. So. Uh, What's different about the filter bubble, you know, you might, you might say um, that, uh, let me get to the right slide here. Uh, it, you might say, well, media has always done this. We've always sought out news sources that conform, confirm our own beliefs. We've always sought out the familiar. What's really different about uh, algorithms doing that work for us? And I think there are three ways in which this is really actually quite different than turning on Fox News or in the United States, MSNBC. And the first difference is that 
the filter bubble that you live in is unique. You don't share it necessarily with anyone else. It's not like opening a periodical uh, and knowing that you're reading it along with another audience of readers that you can get on the phone and discuss it with a friend. It's your own personal set of information. It may be different from your friends or your families or your neighbors. The second is that the filtering that happens is invisible to us. We don't know on what basis Yahoo News or Google or Facebook is deciding which information to show us and which information is not to show us. We don't know what the editorial viewpoint is. As a result, it's very hard to guess what is being left out. As Donald Rumsfeld says, it's an unknown unknown. <laughs> and the final thing is that uh, this is a passive experience. We're not sort of choosing to uh, take a lens and view the world through it. Increasingly, the lens sort of follows us around. And it's increasingly hard to escape. In fact, you know, it's almost like you, know, you sort of step two steps to the side to get a better view on something, to get a different angle, and the world turns to meet your gaze. So I think you know, there are a number of problems with, with the filter bubble for both people and societies, but um, the ones I want to focus tonight on three. So the first is this problem of distortion. It's a problem that essentially what you're getting here is a distorted, filtered view of the world that you don't actually know is distorted. You don't know in what way uh, it's, it's angled. And uh, one of the reasons that you get this kind of distortion is that the psychology behind this, the same psychology that makes it very lucrative for companies to build into their software, um, is, is going to mean that we're likely to see more things that are familiar and that we agree with. You know, the, the, the neuroscience is now good enough uh, that we can almost pinpoint these little bursts of pleasure that we all get in our brains when we're presented with information that confirms what we already thought was true. And conversely, it's nearly universal that when we're presented with information that challenges what we believed, that makes us question whether we were right, we all get cranky. That's just sort of the way it goes. And the question is, if you could build a program that was able to give people more of those dopamine bursts per minute, more little bursts of pleasure per minute, why would you ever show them the stuff that makes them cranky? Why would you ever show them the stuff that challenges what they think, that suggests that maybe we don't all have the answers? So that's the distortion problem. And uh, what it also means is that we're less likely to see things that are important but not immediately clickable or a compulsively sort of attention-seeking, uh, attention-gathering. The way that I think about this is with the Facebook like button. So the like button is the primary way that information gets propagated about Facebook. Unless anyone is thinking, ah, it's just Facebook, it's for kids, you know, whatever. At this point, I think we really need to take Facebook seriously. Facebook is a medium used by 1 in 11 people on Earth. People are spending on average about seven hours a month on this one website. That's far more than any other website. And so when that medium has a sort of a, a, a filtering process in it that shapes what people see and what people don't see, I think we would do well to attend to what it is. And in Facebook's case, the word like has a very particular valence. Like is a positive word. 
it's very easy to click like on I ran a marathon today or I baked a really delicious cake. And it's very hard to click like on a civil war breaks out in, in the Congo, right? Or Iranian woman is about to be stoned to death. So one category of things moves very quickly and another category of, of information may not move at all. It may not make it through the filter bubble on Facebook. I think that's a problem. The second uh, category of, of, of problem, I think, is a problem that uh, the anthropologist Dana Boyd called the psychological equivalent of obesity. And the place that uh, I think this uh, is best illustrated is with some research that uh, was recently done about the Netflix queue. Researchers were looking at uh, movies moving through the Netflix queue, and they noticed that some just kind of zipped to the top of the queue. People decided to rent it. It moved very quickly up and out to people's mailboxes, and, uh, you know, and, and they watched it very quickly. And there were other movies that would just kind of linger just on the threshold, just before being sent out for days or months or sometimes years. And they decided to graph these, set, these movies and see what they saw. So uh, they put it on a graph with the movies that uh, moved most quickly over here and the movies that moved uh, least quickly over here. And they saw two very distinct clusters, right? Over here, the movies that are moving quickly, these are the want movies. These are you know, Iron Man and romantic comedies. These are movies that uh, on a long day, you come home and you go, ah, I just want to watch that. And over here, the movies that took a while, you can all guess probably what these movies were, right? This was documentaries, French cinema, <laughs> and Holocaust movies. That was sort of those three. So Iron Man moves very quickly through the queue, waiting for Superman, takes its sweet time. And what they realized was that there was actually something kind of profound going on here. That in fact, this was a sort of tug of war between two inner selves because we all want to be someone who has watched uh, the great hits of French cinema, but right now we all want to watch Ace Ventura for the fifth time. <laughs> and so, you know, there's this tug of war between this sort of short-term compulsive self and the longer-term aspirational self. And I think the thing to remember here is that the great media actually plays an important role in mediating those two selves and helping us balance those two things. It gives us some information, vegetables, and some information, dessert, and we get an, a balanced information diet. But because of the focus just on what we click first, on what we're most compulsively uh, attracted to and attend to first, uh, the filter bubble can have a very different effect. It can leave us in a world full of, uh, well, instead of, you know, you, you get some balance here. You get Justin Bieber in Afghanistan and, and the old media. But the filter bubble can leave us in this world just full of information junk food, where that's all we see. And that's why Dana Boyd talks about the psychological equivalent of obesity. So the final problem that I want to talk about right now is a problem that's more basic in some ways. It's a problem about control. And uh, this is illustrated beautifully in an essay called Of Sirens and Amish Children by a legal theorist named Yochai Benkler. 
And um, the title is the lyrical part. It's actually about 90 pages of dense legal theory. Um, but I'll sort of sum it up here. Um, he was investigating a, um, a case involving uh, whether Amish parents uh, in America could keep their kids out of public schools. And what the courts started talking about in this case, uh, it reached the Supreme Court, was uh, the nature of agency, the nature of choice. The question they were asking was, if you were shielded from knowing about the modern world, could you be said to make a choice to live that lifestyle? Could you be said to actually be choosing? And what he concludes is that really you couldn't, that choice is a function of understanding what our options are. Even options that we don't expect to take or options that we don't think that we'll ever take, that that's part of what it means to be an agent is to be able to see as many choices as possible and to choose between them. And so uh, when we're using these kind of passive personalized feeds, I think we cede some control in a way that can be really important. We cede the ability to know what our choices are. And so it concerns me when Eric Schmidt says, as he did recently, that people want Google to tell them what to do next. Or when uh, Larry Page says that the goal of a search engine like Google is to show people one result, the right one. Because that makes sense when I'm Googling for my dentist's phone number. <laughs> but it doesn't make sense when I'm Googling climate change or I'm Googling Barack Obama. So what this all suggested to me is that the sort of topology of the internet that I had in my head was kind of wrong. You know, I had sort of bought the mythology about the internet that uh, in the old bad days there was this broadcast society where a few white-haired editors and producers sat in rooms and decided what people got to know. And they were the gatekeepers. And the internet came along and it swept them away. All of a sudden we could all connect to each other and power was decentralized. So here's the gatekeepers, the internet comes along, and you know, all of a sudden we can talk to each other, we can connect. And that's not really what's happening. There are a new set of gatekeepers in town. And this time they're not people, they're code. And so I think the problem is that uh, the code doesn't have embedded in it the set of ethics about what serves citizens well, that, uh, that, the, that the 20th century paradigm for all of its faults had. It doesn't have those same kind of editorial values. And I think we, if, if we're going to rely on these systems to show us the world, to decide what we see and what we don't see, to make many of the same calls that the editors of the 20th century did, that we need to make sure that they don't just focus on this very narrow idea of relevance. We need to make sure that they also show us things that are important or uncomfortable or challenging. We need to make sure that even if it makes us cranky, it shows us other points of view. There's a conversation uh, that the book has started about algorithmic paternalism. That's sort of a new catchphrase. And uh, it, you know, some people use that phrase to describe what I'm suggesting here, to describe uh, you know, the idea that you could embed, it, it would be bad to embed a, a values in algorithms. Why not just let the code be pure and neutral? And the thing is that actually there's no such thing as pure and neutral code. The thing is that 
by their nature, when you're making a ranked list, when you're deciding what people see and don't see, you're making value decisions. You're making decisions about what's true, about what's important. That's what Google is in the business of doing. That's why we all trust it in the first place. And so I think the actual kind of paternalism that's happening here is a different kind of paternalism. It's when these sites say, we're going to take what you actually, you know, what your behavior suggests that you'll do over what you explicitly say. Think about my experience on Facebook, right? I had gone out of my way to add these people. But instead of trusting that signal from me, it was trusting, it was looking at my behavior and saying, it's going to overrule me. It's going to decide what I see because that keeps me on Facebook uh, for more minutes a day. Another example is Netflix. Netflix uh, is rapidly making a transition away from the star system because uh, they're realizing that the streaming data is much more accurate in terms of predicting behavior. They're realizing that uh, it, people actually make some of the same psychological uh, leaps in the star system that they did, you know, that, that uh, they do in the queue, which is they rate Citizen Kane with five stars even if they didn't actually enjoy it that much because they feel like they're obligated to. And so what they can do now, because they actually know what people are watching, is that they say, well, you started uh, Citizen Kane and you watched about five minutes of it and then you flicked over to Fast and Furious 5. And so that's what you're actually interested in. That's paternalism in my view. That's them deciding they know better than we do. And I think uh, if we're going to live with these systems, then we need to make sure, we need to demand some control. We need to demand some tr transparency so that we actually see when this is at work and on what basis these companies are editing our information. And we need to make sure that they have this, these kinds of values built in. Code is not neutral. In fact, back in 1980, uh, a computer scientist named Kranzberg came up with uh, what is now known as Kranzberg's first law. I don't know what his other laws were. But uh, <laughs> his first law um, is that technology is neither good nor evil, nor is it neutral. And I think that's really important to remember as it increasingly mediates what we know of the world. So uh, Tim Berners-Lee, the guy who actually created the web in the first place, wrote a very powerful um, Scientific American article recently in which he said, the web as we know it is being threatened. Some of its most successful inhabitants have begun to chip away at its basic principles. And I think that's part of what we're seeing here. We're seeing the web kind of close in on itself under the pressure of commercialism. And I think that's a problem because we actually need the web to be as good as we all hoped it would be. We need that not just because it'll make browsing more fun, but because actually we can't solve the big problems that are in front of us without a medium that accomplishes that end. If you think about climate change, if you think about terrorism or poverty, these are not problems that any one person can sit in a room and solve. They're going to require massive coordination between people from dis different disciplines and different continents, different ways of thinking thing, coming together to actually create a solution that works for all of us. We need the internet to be able to do that, to introduce us to new ideas and, and new people, to introduce us to different ways of thinking. And it's not going to do that if it leaves us all stuck in a web of one. Thank you.
Great, thank you. That was great. I love those graphics as well. <laughs> we all want to see those. Um, I think there's a room, yeah, there's two, two or one roaming mic. Oh yeah, I, sorry, I can't see you. Okay, um, I'll, I'll, probably what I'll do is I'll take uh, three questions at a time. So if you can keep them short and concise and a question and not a statement, that would be great. Um, and then uh, Eli will get a chance to kind of integrate them and to hopefully answer all three of them. Um, I am going to start at the back. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, let me have there in the middle. Yeah. And then that question as well. And then if I can have another hand up. Okay, there in the middle. And then we'll... um, first of all, thank you for a very interesting and quite scary talk. Um, I've got uh, a couple of questions, actually. One is you mentioned that sort of the positive information feedback makes it easier to target information. Uh, and would that apply as well to the information that we're not giving back about the things that we don't like? So how easy would it be really technically to actually feed back that information? And my second question is if it makes people uncomfortable to actually see that, uh, what makes you think that it would actually work given that most people don't actively try and pursue it? Thank you. Um, given the fact that all of these systems, the Facebook and the Googles and everything else, um, derive their revenue from commercial um, elements of what you're doing on the internet and, and uh, what you're actually being exposed to, and are, there, are filtering those in exactly the same way as you've described, and I think what you've done is a, a fascinating social um, study here. Um, given those are commercial, what should, the, what should we be looking at? What should we be doing with um, advertising messages? Should it be left for consumers to be able to filter those themselves and to set up their own set of filters instead of their own online behavior setting the filter? Or do we want to liberate that completely such that there is no filtering going on? Because consumers tend to find those filters quite useful but they're threatening in the same way as you've described. So just, I'm just interested to see what you, you think from a commercial perspective. Okay, um, one more question there. Yeah. Yes, I just wondered if you could come up with um, five points or five um, uh, suggestions of how we could escape the bubble. <laughs> right. All right, uh, with the last uh, question first, on my website I have ten, so you can choose any five. <laughs> and. Uh, it's just the filterbubble.com. Um, I won't bore people with the technical details, but there are some modest ways that it, it is possible to uh, dial this down. It's not really possible to turn it off completely, um, but you can make a good effort. Um, in terms of the question of uh, whether we should, why we should expect commercial entities uh, to behave differently or, or, or what the sort of solution is in terms of uh, either turning off this filtration or uh, putting consumers in control. I, I, I tend to be of the um, sort of give people control over this and make it transparent to them school. I don't think, I, I'm not actually against personalization in part because of the problem that you know, of, of that information explosion. I think we will need help from algorithms. In a way, the question is, who do they work for? Do they work for us or do they work for these companies and how transparent are they being about that question? And I think um, if we're gonna see this control, then we need to make sure that they work for us more. 
Um, to the question of positive versus negative information feedback, um, it's a great question. And in fact, I, I, I learned something interesting on this point recently, which is uh, I didn't know that the Facebook like button um, adds the fact that you viewed a page that it is on to your Facebook profile or, or can transmit that information to Facebook, whether you click it or not. In other words, Facebook is actually gathering uh, any page that you visit with a like button and adding it to your account. And what that, in theory, should be able to do is precisely the thing of not only track where you do click like, but where you don't click like that it would have guessed that you would have um, in order to make better predictions. Um, again, I think you know that's sort of far beyond the expected behavior for what a company like Facebook would be uh, gathering. And I think we've seen that they do that again and again and again. Um, and finally, you know, the question about if people don't like it, it you know, if people feel uncomfortable or, or uh, being challenged by alternative views, why would, why would that work in a commercial service? Um, and I think, you know, there's a couple answers to that. The first is uh, that, um, you know, we, a lot of the best experiences actually start with that sense of discomfort. Um, but those are the experiences that you remember five or ten years later. And so I sort of half joke that we need like a, um, it was a hard slog at first and then it changed my life button uh, <laughs> to go alongside the like button because, you know, actually when you think sort of, well, what, even at the end of a week, what did I read that really stood with me? It's often actually a different set of things from the set of things that you'll click first or that you'll even click like on necessarily. Um, so, you know, that's sort of one piece of that. And then I think the other piece is, um, you know, we do have, uh, you know, it's not like uh, the media that we have as sort of uh, corporate as they sometimes can be just puts the most, uh, the things that sell the most papers or sell the most uh, news uh, or, or get the most viewers, uh, you know, on the front page. Actually, the media that we have is less sort of optimized in this way than this is. And I think that's because people actually appreciate the sense of I'm getting the whole picture here, even if I'm not really going to love some pieces of it. I think you know, that's sort of an incentive in the long run for people to develop ways to, to challenge this. OK. More questions? Um, OK. Can I have here this person? Let me see your question. and. Oh. Hello. Um, just wondering what your opinion on Wikipedia is as a you know a source that most people get their facts from. Mm -hmm. oh. Hi. Um, my main question is about internet anonymity. Sorry, I messed that up. But you know, I'm sure you've heard of the Tor project and um, the main you know disguising yourself online. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that because you you talk about the bubble, but there there are ways to get around it. I mean, mm -hmm. I use proxies quite a lot, but just for feeling safer is all, uh, hiding myself from people trying to get my information. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay, and then here. I'll, I'll, can you come here to that? I'll those were all quite short questions, I think, yeah. so we can do two. Um, I'll keep it as short as I can. It's a gender question. Um, I, 
I just loved what you had to say and you've really opened my eyes. Um, so I use this as an example. I clicked on Christine Lagarde the other day, which I'm sure most people in this room know is standing for the IMF. And the suggestions that came up, I, I mostly I use AltaVista rather than Google, and if I can't find it because I know what Google's doing, I thought, I knew. And what came up was hair, husband, something or other, and children. And listening to you, I've realised why, because I'm impressed by her as a politician, as a speaker, but I also thought, as a woman of a certain age, she had a fabulous hairstyle, and I wanted to take, <laughs> I wanted to take it to my hairdresser. And therefore, being a woman, they assumed that I wanted to know if she had a husband, was she married, she had kids. IMF was not mentioned, and that mm -hmm. actually, I find, it's a good example, because it's really yeah. scary. So what I want to know is, the people who watch the internet most, who use it most, are men and women, the people who write the software are men or women, and the people who do the data collecting. Now, you use, use the word paternalism. I'm so pleased you did. Right. Can we have yeah, one more? Then we'll do four of us. Hi. Um, I wonder, because when you access Facebook um, from your normal computer, it shows me mainly news feed from my friends, like um, which animal has died or something. <laughs> but if I access it um, via my BlackBerry, for example, it shows me most of the sites, for example, of The Economist's more academic websites. So the news feed is, is completely different, actually. And why is that the case? And how can you change it that I have the same, actually, more academic <coughs> access on the computer, not only from my BlackBerry? Um, all right. Um, well, starting with Wikipedia, um, I'm actually quite a fan of Wikipedia. I think it does one of the best jobs of doing this kind of neutral synthesis of anywhere online. It's sort of the opposite, in a way, of a lot of these dynamics. And um, it, it's it's you know the 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 page on Barack Obama, a hotly a hotly politically contested topic, um, really does a quite elegant job of sort of explaining the kind of key points without getting too distracted into he said, she said. So I think uh, as a model, it's very good. It, and it's notable that it's the one website, probably in the top 50, definitely in the top 10, that's not commercial. Uh, it's, it's not driven by these uh, same kinds of forces as, um, you know, as, as Google or Facebook are. Um, in terms of the Tor project and ways of anonymizing yourself online, I guess I, I, I think uh, that ultimately is a cat and mouse game in which the mouse is likely to lose for a series of reasons. Um, partly, I mean, there's so much money in in getting these signals and getting these sort of little bits of information that reveal stuff about uh, you. And so, for example, um, there's a great website called Panopticlick. Uh, put on by the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, and what that does is it looks simply at the unique set, uh, at, at the set of software, hardware, and uh, settings that are transmitted to any web surfer that you, any web uh, site that you, you browse. Um, as it turns out, in almost all cases, 
that's unique. It's a it's basically a fingerprint that you could use because you say ah you're the only person who has exactly this version of your computer and exactly this version of this piece of software and that piece of software and so on. So it, it, there are lots of ways that this sort of fingerprinting is well ahead of the attempts to uh, sort of block it. And if I understand Tor right, I'm not sure that it, it, Tor would be uh, would foil that. Um, so I think the point of all that is that I think there are ways of addressing this, but I think that the central way to address it is with the big companies that are doing it, not sort of through workarounds that both are complicated, unlikely to work for a long time, and you know most people are not going to be able to figure out or use. Um, to the question about Christine Lagarde, um, it illustrates something that it sort of goes to that uh, Kranzberg's first law point, I think, which is that um, people sort of imagine that because it's code and because it's math, uh, it doesn't have any kind of normative or val you know, social values built into it. And this is sort of the most frustrating thing for me uh, in arguments with, you know, I, I had this argument with Google where they said, look, man, you know, we're not trying to, you know, do anything malicious here. We're just trying to give people uh, what's relevant for them. And I said, okay, but if I'm a 9-11 conspiracy theorist and I Google 9-11, is it your job to give me the link that I'm most likely to click, which is another conspiracy website? Or is it uh, to give me you know, the popular mechanics article that debunks that stuff? Uh, and being a PR guy that I was talking to, he said, ah, well, mm, we'll have to get back to you on that. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, the point is that these things are normative and in fact often what, they, what, what ends up happening is that you're pushed toward the sort of societal, no it says, oh, this is a woman surfing, we're going to show her uh, the stuff about hair because women statistically you know, are more, you know, uh, it, it's, it's entrenching that norm, not exploding it in a personalized way. Um, finally, to the question about uh, Facebook news feeds and the difference between mobile and uh, the, the web experience. It has been something that has been peculiar. You know, it is a very recognizable phenomenon, and I have no idea uh, really why uh, it's happening. Sometimes I actually wonder if it's a way for Facebook to play with several different modalities of the newsfeed with the same users at a massive scale. Um, but that may be. It may just also be that they're that the version that the website is running is much more up to date than the version that's in the software that's on your phone. Um, in any case, I mean, the challenge is that uh, even when you're sort of, e e a lot of people say, well, Facebook has this option where I can see all of the results. Isn't that sort of, doesn't that pop the bubble? And in fact, as it turns out, even that is heavily filtered. So uh, you don't actually see everything uh, when you click over to that tab, you still are, you're, you're seeing a somewhat less, you know, somewhat dialed down amount of personalization, but not at all the whole picture. Okay. Questions? Um, okay. We'll have you um, and over there. If you can give the mic. Uh, very interesting what you said, but now let me play a bit of uh, the devil's advocate. Uh, um, Google at the end is not, I mean, searching is not a human right, uh, at least now, and, and also it's not funded by the government. At the end, it's, it's just a private company, right? Um, these two guys created it, but now it's like a money-making money beast. 
So um, if now uh, it starts to be, become apparent that they use all the searching um, methodologies to make, it, uh, to make more money, what prevents us from moving on and find, either create a new search en engine or I'm sure there are existing search engines that, that are not commercially driven. Uh, are you is that what you would suggest? Or getting the governments to put laws to, to, to pro pro prohibit those commercial um, uh, driven search? Thank you. Uh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Uh, just wanted to come back on one point that you had earlier that uh, the top 50 websites are pulling 64 pieces of personally identifiable information. I think you misused personally identifiable information because that's against the law. So none of those websites would be doing that. Uh, you, could, you could say that they could identify you and come back to you, but it's not exactly ac accurate with the definition of personally identifiable information. Um, coming back on that, I really liked everything you were talking about in terms of there is a, more to the internet out there than, than you see, but there's more than you can filter through. So you said things like, you know, it should be giving you everything that there is out there and giving you a fair and balanced viewpoint, but you haven't been featured on Fox News. People go to Fox News and expect that they're getting a fair and balanced, this is the news of the world, in the same way that they think they're going to Google and getting fair and balanced news of the world. I could tell you that they don't think that you know, they're missing out on the liberalist viewpoint and things like that. I also felt like you kind of conflated the purpose of Facebook and Google in that Facebook is making money off of filtering and keeping you on the site longer, but Google, in terms of the organic search results, isn't making money off that. They're making money off of the paid search links on the side, but if somebody's searching for 9-11, uh, the conspiracy theory, and they're given five results that are not accurate to what they think is happening or what they're looking for, they're not going to spend any more time looking on the web and learning about how popular science says they're wrong. They're just going to abandon the internet and go to the library and find other things on the conspiracy theory. So. I feel like you're asking the internet to play parent to people in the same way parents ask the government to play parent to their children and disallow everything. And I feel like it's taking a lot of the responsibility off of people who should learn how to search. Barack Obama is not a search in terms of give me everything about this or that or the other. You have to learn how to use these tools. Um, you were talking very much about um you know, the receiving end, I'm at the sending end. Um, you talked in the balance about homelessness. I run a magazine for homeless people. Um, I wonder if you'd like to address the difficulty of getting unacceptable information out about, sort of, say, you know, fairly unpleasant abuses of human rights. Thank you. All right. Um, so to the question about sort of... Uh, Search, you know, searches in a human right, so what should be done about this? I mean, um, you asked if uh, maybe we should use search engines that are not commercially driven. A funny uh, sort of footnote that I discovered when I was doing the research for the book is that actually in the original paper about Google uh, by Larry Page and Sergey Brin, uh, they say, and I'm going to have to paraphrase, but a search engine that is driven by advertising will necessarily be 
uh, corrupted by that profit motive and will not give the best results. That wh that's why we believe that Google should remain a nonprofit uh, academic effort. Uh, and that was about like three months before uh, they started the company. Um, so take from that what you will. Uh, you know, I think we have always viewed the sort of central um, uh, organs that provide citizens with information as having some additional responsibility in our society. We see news agencies and newspapers as playing kind of a bigger role than just as commercial entities. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I think it is a critical role. And in fact, uh, you know, uh, it wasn't like newspapers were always that way either in most of the 1800s. Uh, they really were uh, kind of pretty much putting on the front page whatever sold the most copies. And after World War I, um, there was this real kind of uh, recognition uh, that in a way that the propaganda effort had been too successful and that basically all of the newspapers had been conscripted very easily in manipulating public opinion and it had worked and people realized that oh you can actually use these institutions to manipulate public opinion therefore it's extra important that they be independent that they have this focus on kind of uh, you know feeding the citizens and people and that's sort of where the the discourse about journalistic ethics the modern discourse about journalistic ethics comes from I think in a way you know we're sort of back at that moment uh, you know on the web and and the new sort of institutions that are playing that role haven't you know, had that moment where they've really come to reckon with this incredibly crucial central role that they're playing. Um, uh, to to your points, um, the 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 point about personally identifiable information. That's you're right. That was a that was a mis uh, misphrase. Although it's worth noting that um, what that information, what what those cookies do. I mean, I, I find. The, the distinction around personally identifiable information to be a little bit misleading from a consumer standpoint. Uh, what these companies use it to mean is something like your name or your, your uh, birth date. But it does in fact mean that if you put a cookie on someone's computer, which is technically not personalized, personally identifiable information, that websites can identify you personally and serve you uh, content you know, for you. It's just that they don't know your name. Uh, so it's sort of a, in the context of personalization, I think it's a little bit of a distinction without a difference. Um, the, you know, I think in terms of uh, the Fox News analogy, I really think that people view these tools differently. I mean, I think what this comes down to is do people, are people given the transparency so that they can understand how to use the tools rather than having the tools use them? And um, you know, I think uh, the challenge here is that the workings of this are hidden. Most people don't even know that this kind of phenomenon is at work in their Google search results. And so it's hard to make any informed choices about uh, what kind of search engine to use or uh, you know, when to use Google and when to use something else. You don't even know that that part of it exists. Um, finally, to the point about uh, homelessness, you know, I do actually, that, I do think that is one of the, exactly sort of in the area of issues of public import that are, uh, you know, to some degree promoted by media because they actually matter, um, but will quickly fall away in a sort of traffic-driven, uh, optimized, personalized world. Um, it, you know, the example that I use in the book is, is the war in Afghanistan. And when you talk to people who 
are at news agencies and run stories about Afghanistan, they routinely do very poorly because, uh, I mean, they, they get very few clicks because it's depressing and complicated and there are no easy villains or uh, heroes or they're, you know. But um, the, the, the story is complicated and uh, it, yet they persist in putting it on the front page because actually there's a war going on that we're all making decisions about and we need to know about it. Um, that's what I worry about sort of disappearing uh, if we're not careful. Okay, I'm going to abuse my position as chair to ask you a question, right. actually. <laughs> it's nice to have power and control. Um, so my question is really about um, if you em envision a future without the real world. Because um, without any of the media that we now have still existing, without any of our friends ever telling us what they saw online, without having any discussion. This is the way in which the media have traditionally been used. There's a social glue. We see something, you know, maybe not together, but we come and we talk about it. So maybe one of the ways to circumvent the bubble is to actually have friends and a social life and relationships. I'm just wondering where is the offline? <laughs> where is the real world in, 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 in this book, in your talk? Well, um, the challenge is that people's friends don't necessarily play this role at all. In fact, statistically speaking, they're likely, more likely to be more similar than the average bear. Um, the, you know, there's a great book called The Big Sort, and The Big Sort uh, looks at the way that communities have kind of self-segregated uh, geographically in the United States. And it's been this incredibly intense phenomenon uh, where over the last 30 years, uh, it, you know, the, the, the number of communities that have kind of a diversity of different political viewpoints has dropped precipitously. It's very unlikely, for example, in the United States uh, for people to know uh, someone from a different social class than they were. And that just wasn't true 30 years ago. And it's basically because, you know, people are sort of self-sorting, or rather some people are self-sorting to be with people like them, and then some people are left behind and by, by definition, uh, you know, are, are, have that in common with each other. Um, so, the, so, so you'd sort of hope that the internet would be a way actually to broaden your view outside of that little sort of local uh, framework. And in fact, I think what's happening is that sort of we're taking it around uh, with us online. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to escape. I do think that part of what this suggests is that the role of human curators and editors is more important than it's ever been in a way. And I think if that's done deliberately and if uh, you're sort of calling out the curator and people, you know, I think there's a difference between relying on your friends to post what's important on Facebook and saying, hey, do you mind curating a set of information for me so that I know what's going on? Um, and I think when you do the latter, you actually, you, you don't need the sort of editors on high to get a quite good set of information. I think that's sort of one of the hopes here is that people could r rely on people with that sensibility uh, to fill in some of the gaps. Um, I, I, if folks are interested, I wrote a little blog post on this called Seven Things That Human Editors Do That Algorithms Don't Yet. And, um, you know, there are a whole bunch of things that these algorithms are actually just terrible at. They're, they're terrible at um, predicting what is going to be news in 
two days, you know, some basic things like there's a speech coming up or there's a meeting of two world leaders, you could predict that people will want to know about that, but the algorithms are, are bad at it. Um, and so at least for the, for the near term, I do think if you want to get good information, it's going to be some mix of human and, and algorithms, not just the algorithms. Okay, back to the floor. Um, okay, I'm going to go in the back again. Um, why don't I take both the, uh, the, the gray and the white shirt, <laughs> and then let me see. Um, and here, uh, the lady here has her hand up. Yeah. Hi, I thought it was a um, really interesting talk. Um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on um, whether uh, the bubble is a, sort of a consequence of us um, having access to free websites effectively, um, that there isn't a subscription fee to Facebook or Google, for example, um, and whether this is just the companies trying to find a return on their investment. Um, do we have to get more used to paying for things on the internet to have the kind of quality information that we might like, or do you think this would make no difference at all? Okay, uh, my question is, uh, if we are all creatures of habit, and those uh, who choose to research and are interested in, in an alternative way of thinking or looking to be made, dis well, have something uh, discomforting, I suppose, uh, presented to them on the internet. Um, surely the vast majority of people uh, uh, will be happy to be assisted given the plethora of information that's out there. On the flip side of that, if I'm interested to learn about a different perspective, there are any number of different websites I can go to where I know where the alternative perspective will be presented to me. I don't buy one newspaper, for example. I don't look at one news website. I'll look at Al Jazeera, I'll look at BBC, I'll look at CNN, etc., Huffington Post, and so on. I know that they're out there. I can choose, and surely, in my own mind, why wouldn't I? If I wanted a broad-based view, every opinion is out there. Let me take that question first. Um, you know, I think, again, the question is on whose basis are you, you know, what are you optimizing for, right? Because uh, news agencies have, or, or, or a lot of these websites have something very simple to optimize for, which is the more ad clicks and the more ad views. Um, I think if you really actually wanted to provide people that, with information that was useful, you could actually use, uh, you know, some, you could reveal some of this to people so that their choices would be more informed. So for example, um, so, so one example is, uh, uh, you know, you could, uh, on the New York Times, if you sort of dig in under their new personalized recommendation tool, it'll, it, it will actually show you a little graph of here's what you visited, how much, and that's what we're using. 
And when I visited that, I was actually, I mean, it's actually revealing in a way that changes your behavior because you go, oh, I had no idea that I wasn't reading any of those articles and I was reading every single one of, uh, in this case, the technology articles. Um, and, you know, it did make me actually change my habit. So there's a thing about sort of, if you're willing to reveal this to people, then actually they can make better decisions. Um, I think the other piece is, I mean, a, a little thought experiment that I like is, uh, you know, on the one hand, you have sort of the clicking self that is surfing one of these websites. Um, imagine that you tally, you know, all of those different pages that I visit, and then at the end of the week, you send me, here's a list of pages, why don't you just star the three that you thought were the, actually the best. Um, again, I think you'll actually find a useful discrepancy there that you could then use to inform uh, how things were recommended to people uh, better, because you'd be actually giving them the stuff that stuck with them, not just the things that, I mean, the things I click first, at least, are not often the things that stick, stick with me. Um, and that's sort of actually part of just learning. I mean, that's sort of, by definition, we like the familiar, but then learning is about getting out of the familiar, and so that's a challenge. <laughs> and you, you want to build these things to, to promote that. Um, to the question about sort of being creatures of habit, I think, uh, you know, those, those things go together in a way. I think, in a way, it's sort of, my problem with this is that it's an insufficient interrogation of, of the idea of what people want. Because, you know, sort of as in the Netflix example, we all want a lot of mutually contradictory things. We want to eat cake and be thin. And, uh, you know, the question is, how, are the, how, how do you mediate those things and which do you take as the signal that this is really what you want? I think um, if you ask people to choose, do you want just the stuff that you click on most or do you want the stuff that will make you feel like a uh, better citizen in the long run, but you'll be annoyed by it sometimes. I think a lot of people would actually, you know, sort of make that, would, would not just choose, show me just the stuff that I like. Um, finally, you know, the, the, the question about the, the bubble as a consequence of free websites. I mean, I think this in a way is sort of one of the hearts of the problem, which is it's not free at all. Uh, you know, for these companies, the data that we're giving them translates directly into money. I mean, almost to the point where you could put a dollar figure on some of the pieces of data. So to the companies, they know very well uh, how much value is being uh, sucked in. It's just their job is to make it sort of opaque to us and make it seem like there's no transaction going on there at all. They're doing us a favor. Um, and I think you know Google would feel very different if it, if, if we perceived it as a $100 a year service that we're paying for in data rather than a free service and they do some stuff that who knows what they do. Okay. We'll take two more rounds of questions just so that you know what the timing on this is. Um, I think you've had your, sorry, yes, she's had her hand up for a while. Um, can I also have you, this gentleman, in the front? Okay. 
My question is, uh, I mean, you've been um, political, if you like, with a small p throughout this evening, if I can um, uh, introduce the political with the big p, campaigning. Um, anxieties about voting patterns and so on. Um, I've got a long-term interest in personalization and predictive modeling and data mashing. We know going back to 1997 in this country uh, that election was determined by less than a quarter of a million people. Uh, similar uh, activity has gone on in the states for far longer than political activists in the states have been uh, campaigning about. Um, the issue about personalization um, is not quite as either the person who challenged you said, nor as you replied, in that quite a lot of your searches will probably contain your postcode, your zip code, your name, uh, name of your friends and family, and so on. Um, it's surprising how personal your ISP number can be. Yeah. Um, what are you conscious of that the people who are in this space, by which I mean the pollsters who are working with the predictive modelers, um, are, and they buy all the data sets and so on, uh, what are they doing to uh, rig our electoral <laughs> <laughs> Hi, great talk. Um, I actually uh, do research into recommender systems, so that's why I wanted to come here today. Um, I was just a little bit disappointed because you're not, very, you're not being very fair to some of the ways that people use these tools for discovery, particularly with music and um, stuff like that. But that aside, um, my question is more about the examples that you were choosing. So, of course, you know, I think everyone in the room would agree that a squirrel really isn't as important as a person dying, but you're sort of saying that there's an objective truth behind news stories. And so do you think that's the case? And, um, you know, if, if you do think that there is an objective truth that one story does particularly trump another, um, say, when two people are dying, right? Um, which one would you choose, right? So, um, of course, these, these kind of things can't really be captured by the way people's clicks, but I'd, I'd like you to maybe pick a, a, a bigger example. Thanks. Um, so, to the question about uh, regulation, somewhere here. Uh, so, um, I think that the locus, I think there probably is a need for uh, regulation, and I think uh, the locus of that is giving people control over their personal information in, a fir in the first place. Um, you know, at least in the United States, the privacy laws are uh, 40 years old, and they just don't contemplate a world in which a click over here can reveal something fairly personal to you to a website over here and be sold for money without you ever n knowing about it, and then you know this website can show you something different on that basis. That seems to me like something that we ought to have some knowledge of and some control over. Um, and as with many sort of legal and technical issues, uh, you know, it's just a problem of the, the technology being far ahead of sort of the law's ability to catch up with it. But I think that's sort of the regulatory reset that needs to happen. Um, on the question about sort of politics and political campaigning, and there is a chapter about that uh, in the book, it does concern me. Um, less in practice and more in theory, 
because at least in the American political culture, while there's some of this that goes on, it's really not as sophisticated. It's certainly nowhere near what Google is doing. I mean, there, there, there's some targeting that happens, but uh, the online, the ability to shape what people see and they don't see online, especially in content, it's just we're just beginning to enter that um, that world. Um, I do worry about it though because I think in campaigning, the dynamics of campaigning will mean that increasingly, sort of, it, it looks less like a conversation and more like a set of unlinked accusations. So. You know, for all of the faults of the sort of campaign ad and the broadcast media, at least it means that the, that there's one venue in which the candidates are making their arguments to each other, as opposed to this sort of fragmented thing where you may not even know what arguments are being made against you. Uh, you know, they never link up their ships passing in the night. That's my that's my worry about this. Um, finally, the question about sort of do I have a sense of objective? truth behind the news stories or, or what have you. No, I mean, I think it is always subjective as is everything, but I think um, there are ways that you could draw out that signal. You know, if you, if you wanted to, if you had a Facebook important button that had the function of signaling, this is socially important, I actually, you know, think you would actually get some good data out of that that you could mix into the Facebook news feed. I don't think that, uh, I'm not suggesting that we need to sort of institutionalize, ah, uh, search for Afghanistan, and if the, that story uh, comes up, then bump it up in the, in the ranking. I think there are ways that you could actually draw that information out if it was of concern to do that. And I think that's sort of the question is, you know, is there an interest in, in doing that? When I talk to folks at these companies, and, and I'm talking again mostly about uh, Facebook and Google and to some degree Yahoo and Amazon, um, engineers are sometimes very excited about that, but at the top level, it's not a programming priority to figure out how do we boost that up. Uh, you know, they, it, it's not gonna be making nearly as much money as doing that kind of prediction. Um, so, you know, that's my concern is essentially, you know, I think you could draw that out from people as a whole, not from some authority on high, but you would need to actually be asking the right questions. Okay. Right, the last three questions, let's make it good. So, okay, let's go here in the front and, um, okay, can I ask the, the gentleman there with a hat? Um, and then, who, I think you've had your hand up for a while, so I'll give it to you. Yeah. Um, thank you. It was a great talk. Um, I'm just thinking about the role of public broadcasters so in the Western democracies. Obviously, it's, it's very different in the States, but in the Western democracies, we've got great uh, public broadcasters with a, a significant online presence, and I'm just wondering what you think the role they play. Mm -hmm. Hello. Oh, yeah. Um, thank you for what has been um, uh, an interesting discussion. Um, I, I um, am an artist and I've I done some research when I was at art school about the internet and uh, at that time there was a lot of talk about um, elites like uh, hackers on one side and in large institutions on the other. Um, much of tonight's talk has um, revolved around uh, Google and Facebook, which seem to be large institutions controlling 
things on the internet at the moment. Um, now, these elites, they're, they're, they're people who have um, a good grasp of the technology. And as the technology moves forward, um, where do you think it's going? Um, hi, uh, great talk. Um, I just have two, two, two questions, basically. Uh, the first one is, I think we all if, know that if you're into a subject online, if you're, if you're very interested uh, and you go digging, you can find amazing information, you can find stuff which is not normally in the press or in the, uh, on TV and so forth. Um, and uh, Google's page rank traditionally has been seen by lots of people as a meritocracy. Right. And if you start a new business, you know, and it's, if you've got a great idea, if you write an amazing blog post, it kind of will be found. So I was feeling, wondering about the balance of your talk, because it sounds quite alarmist, and I still think that it's a great opportunity for young people or people that don't have a lot of capital to invest in the business to get ahead compared to the previous media dispensation we were in. That's the one thing. The other thing I was just wondering is, uh, uh, is I, I, I agree with you that that you have to create your curators, and that's becoming more imp important. And I was wondering, uh, is that why Twitter is so amazing if you use it correctly? Yes. Um, <laughs> and perfectly said, because it really is a question of if you use it correctly. But, you know, I, the, the Facebook example that I gave, uh, those same people who I followed on Twitter I see regularly, you know, I, Karl Rove comes up all the time in my Twitter feed. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I think Twitter at least makes it transparent on what basis you're going to see pieces of information and gives people a very clear sense of control. That said, they just announced a couple weeks ago that they're starting to do personalized recommendations for uh, Twitter search. Uh, so when you search for something on Twitter, it's not sort of the top result overall. It's the result that's best for you. And um, that explains why when I was talking to someone at Twitter and I was saying, you guys really get this, they were going, eh, well, it's a hard, <laughs> it's a hard question. Um, to, the, to the question about uh, meritocracy and, and page rank, I mean, I think page rank was that way. I mean, page rank, uh, you know, was this thing where sort of the web was voting in aggregate about what the right answer was. I think, you know, part of my problem is that, uh, you know, we're sort of veering away from that and toward a more subjective, sub subjective behavior-based um, sort of way of working. And the challenge is, yes, you know, you, you can go digging and find things, but it actually may be hard to kind of get out of that hole in a way. You know, you, you sort of you'll have that uh, acute interest following you around and influencing what else you see for a long time to come. Um, so, you know, the question is how do you get it right? How do you, how do you balance those things well? And one of the challenges is we have no idea because it's also so opaque um, that it, you know, it's hard to say whether Google is doing a good, good balancing job or not on that score because they won't tell us anything about really how it you know, about how the code looks. Um, to the question about elites uh, and, uh, you know, their grasp on this technology, uh, one of my favorite interviews that I did for the book was with a guy um, who is one of the top uh, information warfare specialists. And he got very fascinated by uh, what this kind of system would mean for um, changing public opinion because 
you wouldn't actually even have to sensor things out. You could just sort of adjust the informational friction around certain pieces of information and uh, you know most people would never come across it. And in a way actually that's sort of what China uh, does with a firewall more than certainly there's censorship there but a lot of it is actually accomplished with that sort of it's, it's less about not being possible to find that information and more making it adding some friction so that most people don't go out of their way. Um, anyway, I find it sort of one of the one of the more concerning sort of um, potentials here as and that's basically just a function of uh, a huge amount of internet traffic being running through a few institutions that have good reason to want to keep governments happy with them. Um, there's nothing sort of nefarious per se about that, but it can lead bad places as we know. Um, finally, the question about public broadcasters and uh, you know I do think it's a great case for public information utilities that don't uh, require these sort of commercial motives. I think probably we need to rethink what that looks like in this sort of new uh, landscape, but I think uh, it, you know it, it, the, the BBC website or um, you know, even uh, the NPR website in the United States have become sort of newly powerful and relevant because they do actually sort of provide this very, um, you know, this this broad view. That that said, if you have them sort of to, to the point on homelessness, if if you have them churning out all of these great stories about problems in far-flung countries, and it's all getting intercepted by algorithms that filter it out, then obviously. Uh, you haven't actually gotten that far. And so I think some, in some way we still need to, to grapple with what are the values of the, of the things that are doing the filtering regardless of who's actually producing information that's, that's valuable. Um, I really appreciate uh, everyone's questions and uh, thoughtful commentary. And um, I'd be happy to personalize your book if you want. <laughs> okay. Thank you.